Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. So thank you all for joining us. I am Keon Gilbert, co-director of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. And I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourselves. My name is Stephanie Baker. I am a member of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative. I'm also an associate professor of public health studies at Elon University, and I'm co-founder and curator of the Health Equity and Racism Lab at Elon. I'm Crystal Dixon. I'm an assistant professor of the practice at the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Wake Forest University. I'm also a member of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative, and I'm also the founder of Mangle Consulting, um, so I'm glad to be here. I'm Lizzie Biddle. I'm also a member of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative, where I'm an organizer, and I also organize with the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I'm a trainer with the Racial Equity Institute. Awesome. Well, welcome. Thank you all for, for joining us. Um, looking looking forward to chatting with you all. Um, let's just sort of jump right into it. What is the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative? So the collaborative is pretty much a consortium of people from the academics, community, corporate hospital settings, and we come together to address systemic racism, particularly in healthcare at this moment. And we meet every month. And we come together, which is a community-led organization, which was founded by a community member to address systemic inequities in healthcare. Great. So how long has the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative been around? The Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative is in its 19th year of existing, and we're excited to celebrate 20 years next year. It, for me, it really is a family first. It is um, a community that helped me to understand that research can have value outside of writing publications and presenting at conferences. And honestly, you know, for me, um, when I finished my dissertation, which was a secondary data analysis, I was ready to be done with research. And Jenny, Jeannie Ng um, introduced me to the collaborative, my first job out of my doctoral program was um, teaching and administration because, like I said, I was done with research. Uh, but your mentors see something in you sometimes that you don't see in yourself. And Jeannie um, Ballin told me, you know, that I was going to be a member of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative. And in that community, I found my, my way back um, to research and how it can actually be used as a tool for advocacy and action how it can make meaning of the work that we were doing. And so that really reset my career completely. That's amazing. Um, so that's actually a really interesting question I, I, I'll pose to all of you. What drew you or who drew you to the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative? How about you, Lizzie? It's a great question. I, um, my entrance into the collaborative was as a community member. Um, I've lived here in Greensboro now close to 15 years and um, had been through a, a two-day racial equity workshop led by Crossroads Ministry um, when I was an undergraduate at Guilford College. And um, after that, did not get involved in organizing. Um, it took me a long time to come back to that content, to that information, to that analysis, to that approach, to doing racial justice work. And when I was finally ready to, a couple of years after graduating, I knew a, a friend of mine who was a member of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative and very active in organizing work in Greensboro, Dr. Jennifer Shaw who is a founding member of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative. She's a retired OBGYN physician that was part of that initial group that Crystal mentioned that came together to address inequities. 
And so I said, you know, I'm finally to get involved. What can I start out with? And I was in my early 20s and the Greensboro Health Disparity Collaborative Meetings were in person and offered dinner. They offered food. And uh, as a broke 20-something, that was important to me. So I started going. You have to love meetings with food. Absolutely. (laughs) Especially as a student. Uh, Crystal. Yeah, I have to agree with Lizzie on that one. And similar to Stephanie, I, I... I was a junior in my career, and I had been exposed to a two-day racial equity training by the Racial Equity Institute. And um, Dina Hayes-Green and uh, Suzanne Plissick were my trainers, and they changed my life. And after that experience, she said, you know what, Dina said, you should really join the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative. You get invitations when you're working to join a whole lot of organizations. And so I dropped in because, you know, everyone's doing different things. And But the collaborative was the first space where A, the community member was leading and B, we were addressing systemic inequities. Like I've never seen anything like that. Actually having the conversation about racism and how it's actually embedded in systems. It was extremely refreshing. And everyone there had this very same analysis and we were all speaking the same language. And it was just really therapy for me. (laughs) So I went back because, yes, the food was amazing, Lizzie, but I love the space and it felt like family and it felt like we were actually making change that was long term. <laughs> and I, I just I've never seen a space like that and I've never left. And I think that was about seven years ago. So I'm really excited to be still part of the family. That's good to hear. Good to hear. So, I mean, you've you all have talked about the focus, some of the focus of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative and systemic change, anti-racism. And so how did the collaborative come to focus on anti-racism, especially as it relates to thinking about the healthcare system? I can take a stab at this and I invite my other uh, colleagues to join in. But I love this story um, because it starts with Mama Nettie, um, who Nettie Code is affectionately known as Mama Nettie, and I never got to meet Mama Nettie. She passed away the year before I came to the collaborative. Um, And so, but the story I'm told about Mama Nettie is that she was just a relentless Black woman community organizer who had been working in partnership with some community members about addressing neighborhood level issues. They had been invited to participate in a training, undoing racism training with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond out of New Orleans and had really started shifting their analysis of problems to analyzing systems versus blaming people. And so, you know, they're organizing and doing this work and growing and learning together and building their capacity and then the Institute of Medicine report comes out. Mama Nettie gets hold of that about um, you know racial disparities in our healthcare system, and she connects that with stories that she's being told about how people are navigating our cancer care system in Greensboro through the local hospital. And in her mind, I think started putting the pieces together and starting to see that there may be some utility and connecting an anti-racism analysis with research tools and community leadership, you know, community partnerships to address the problem. And so she's just start bringing her people to the table to start imagining what it could look like. And one of the, sto- one of the pieces of the story that I absolutely love that's not typical in partnerships is that the community interviewed the academics and they got to make the decision about what academic they wanted to work with. You know, ultimately they chose Jeannie Ng, who's my mentor, because she had a strong background in community partnerships and community-based participatory research. And I think Jeannie would be very honest to say at that time, she didn't have a strong anti-racism lens. She came in with the community partnership expertise, the balancing power, the seeing everybody as having expertise and bringing that to the table. That's what she brought. But I think Mama Nettie saw, I can get her on the anti-racism. But, you know, I, I, I got that. <laughs> but she's bringing this community skill that, that is crucial 
to how we do this work. And so, so that's the story I'm told and I love telling. So a wonderful story. I, I mean, in, in many ways, it speaks to the power of community, the purpose of, of community, and also a very sort of unusual um, way of partnering that we don't think about as academics in terms of the community partner coming to the academic institutions or looking for an academic partner to carry out some, some of their work. And so I think that's part of the beauty of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative for, for sure. Um, so when, we, when you think about sort of the focus of anti-racism of, of the collaborative and trying to figure out, well, how do we integrate this with research? What do you think are some of the most important um, skills, tools in terms of what makes this collaborative um, tick, what makes it move, what keeps it functioning and, 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 and going along? I'll talk a little bit about one of the um, expectations for folks to join the collaborative. Um, and, and, you know, we can, we're always happy to have attendees and, and folks um, kind of participate with us a, a couple of times before becoming a member. But that expectation is that people will go through the two-day workshop. And initially, it started with, as Stephanie mentioned, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And then when the Racial Equity Institute formed in 2008, 2009, that was the two-day workshop. And part of that was to say, you know, we're, we have a, it's a multiracial, multidisciplinary collaborative group. People are coming from all these different backgrounds that if we're going to work to address, address and examine and eliminate something as complex as structural inequities, We've had to have to have some common understanding, some common language, some shared analysis, um, because unfortunately, in our in our society, in our culture, we don't have that. We, you know, we we don't have any shared thoughts um, or perspective or deep um, even respect. One of my mentor, one of our mentors, frequently talks about around race and racism. And so that that kind of core of saying this is what we know and believe to be the problem, and we're going to put that cause at the at the center of our analysis to determine then both not only what kind of interventions we're going to propose, but also just how we operate. So we start from that foundational place, those those organizing principles, that racial equity analysis, and that informs every other aspect of the collaborative in terms of our culture, um, how we flow, how we operate, what kinds of projects we look to, um, the speed at which we apply for projects, um, the kinds of um, programs and funding opportunities um, we seek out, what other kinds of partnerships we look for. And, and that also allows us to have a sense of accountability to each other and accountability to our base that we're trying to grow, which are people within the community and people that experience, you know, the effects day in and day out. Because part of that root of the analysis is all about accountability and how our institutions, especially including healthcare, have removed that accountability um, across decades from from community. And so we that it's all kind of part of the heart of the of the collaborative approach to this work. Just to kind of echo Lizzie, because what I'm hearing you say is essentially we're de deconstructing whiteness in research or decolonizing <laughs> research. And it is a process, you know, it is not like an end point. We are constantly met with our own biases or the own ways that we've been trained to do things. And that's why it's important to do this work in community because I will mess up, Lizzie will mess up, Crystal will mess up. We know Kianda messed up. <laughs> you need people that you care about, that truly like care about you, to gather you and say, okay, now, like, I know you didn't intend to do this, but this is the direction this is going. And so we need to just reset. And, and, and we need to center back on those principles that we have agreed to. And we need to figure out another way to do this. And, and I'll say the principles that Stephanie was referring to is from the full value contract, right? And so we have something written that says, this is what we agreed to. And, and Stephanie, I love how she brought up as well of the accountability. 
of calling people out. We call those pinch moments. We actually will stop a meeting and say, hold up. I don't like the way that came across. Can we have a moment for it? Let's unpack this for a second. And it has not been easy. Sometimes it's been very uncomfortable because there's a lot of, remember, there's a lot of um, egos that are being brought into the room unintentionally. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are taking up a lot of space in the room unintentionally. About ego, I just had to snap, snap. Yes, a lot of ego, Stephanie and Lizzie, you see it. And Keon, I know you remember that because people are coming with the training, as Stephanie said, to say, this is how we're going to do things. I'm in charge. And so what I love about the collaborators, we're like, we're going to go ahead and squash that. Re relax. We're all sharing power here. No one's more important than the next. In fact, we don't even use the titles in the collaborative. We just call each other by first name. Um, and so, and, and that's just the kind of the vibe and the family and the, because that's how the work's going to get done. If it's not, if the, if the culture is not right and the climate is not right, the work is not going to get done. No, that's a, a, again, a, an amazing story. I mean, in one that you don't hear often in terms of the ways that you partner together, the ways that you collaborate together, the way that you've structured um, how you discuss issues, how you make decisions. You don't often hear that. And one of the questions that Crystal has already answered is, is this written down um, somewhere? Or how do you all sort of, you know, continue to reflect and operate off these off these principles? And it's good to hear that there, all of these things are written down as a way of helping everyone to sort of center themselves or get recentered or, you know, the, the checks that you that you just mentioned. Um, and so how do you sort of manage um, some of the difficulties of working in the anti-racism space, as especially for, for your group, as it relates to healthcare? Because um, most of the time, people are not interested in talking about anti-racism. They're not talking about undoing racism in many ways. And we often conflate or confuse the idea of working on health disparities issues being separate from working on issues related to race and racism. Okay, there are lots of really important issues, right? That we can frame as health disparities, um, but you all constantly push the work, push your interests, push your partnerships, push your collaborations and research, research endeavors to focus on structural racism. How do you continue to do that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and I think there's several different ways that we continue to do that. One, we commit ourselves to constant learning. We, I think most of us see ourselves as lifelong learners. Yeah, so we have an outreach and reach committee that kind of provides opportunities for us to continue to learn, to continue to go to trainings, to revisit trainings. The training has evolved, you know, as, as Suzanne Plissick or Dina, one of them says, you know, as racism evolves, anti-racism has to evolve. And so the training is different from when I first went and it needs to continue to evolve. And so we need to keep going back because you don't ever come to some final moment of like knowing everything that you need to know about anti-racism. Um, and I will say the other thing that Dina Hayes-Green has taught me is the importance of being a critical lover of your institution. And I will say that as much as we focus on structural racism in the collaborative, we do not focus enough on the intersections of racism with other systems of oppression. And I think we really need to be doing some in-work on, on how we can strengthen our work by acknowledging the ways that racism intersects with sexism and heterosexism and ageism and ableism and all of the other many ways that oppressions show up in our society. I love what, what you said, Stephanie. I, I think um, to add on to that, um, the only way a system is going to shift is if you take the powers within it and um, educate them on the importance of it. And one of the things that collaboratives have done is we've identified physician champions on the inside and trained them and leveraged their influence and their power over the system. And that keeps systemic racism, anti-racism at the forefront because we've manipulated power um, to our advantage to help the greater good. And, and, and until, in, unless they're involved regularly, um, this fight's going to be harder if they're not at the table. And that's why we're really thrilled that we have um, physicians such as doc, um, uh, Dr. Matt Manning and, and Sam Seikert and, and even Jennifer, Dr. Shandra Rasal, who's been retired, 
to be here. Um, and so anyhow, I think we, we figured out, well, we have to leverage um, those on the inside because the system, once you put your foot on the system, it's going to bend. But once you left your foot off, as uh, Dina Hayes Green says, it's going to go right back to the way it's supposed to design to operate. And so we have to keep those um, people on the inside at the table. Uh, and to add a, a little bit, um, I think for some of your listeners to what Stephanie said, um, and, you know, your listeners aren't going to know that I'm the white woman in this, in our, in our group. And I think sometimes we as white folks, um, the, 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 uh, the lens of race and racism is, might be the first thing to go. So as Stephanie is talking about intersectionality, part of the collaborative seeing race and racism at the center is to say when we don't, when we, when our analysis doesn't include race and racism and we're talking about sexism, we're three women. We know that there's sexism in the world. White women will always benefit more than women of color, than black women, than Latino women, you know, and, 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 um, transgender folks as well. And so, um, you know, to Kian, what I heard in your question is almost a little bit of why, you know, why do we push on um, race and racism? And that's part of it is that we know that we have to keep it at the center um, because otherwise we can make progress. And we have made progress over the decades on other things, but the inequities, especially in healthcare, are just getting worse. I mean, they're just getting worse in terms of outcomes between white people and people of color, and that's not okay. And so then, you know, again, for your listeners, thinking about a really important question for white people is why? What's in it for us? Um, and to see that there's a lot, there's a lot that's in it for us. Um, and we've got a, that's a really important thing that we talk about in the collaborative. And in fact, um, we can share a little bit more about our, our successful project looking at cancer disparities is we found that we, when we actually intervened and eliminated and closed the gaps, it wasn't a zero-sum game. It wasn't like all of a sudden outcomes for the white patients got worse. No, the outcomes actually got better for everyone. And that we're clear um, within the collaborative that, that that's what we want. We want everyone's health outcomes to get better. And consistently, one of the ways um, research and even not even just outside of the research sphere, we see that happen is by actually addressing inequities, by actually seeing the role of race and racism as a political, as a legal, as an economic construct historically and presently that still is incredibly salient in all of our lives. Lizzie, that's a great segue into something else I wanted to ask you all to talk about. Um, you all have actually been able to close a racial inequity gap in um, in healthcare outcomes. And that is quite unusual. When I talk to my um, students in public health at St. Louis University, I often talk about trends and patterns and how they have, you know, pretty much remained the same. There are very few gaps that we've actually been able to close, but you all have actually managed to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the story and the pathway to the the Acure project um, and sort of what's and I'll, I'll ask you also what's 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 next for you all. Okay, I'll jump in again. I love telling this story because it it is hope, right? And hope is one of those things that we have to have to continue to do this work. And so essentially, I think the fundamental reason why we were able to close and eliminate those racial inequities gaps is because it was a community academic medical professional partnership. There was expertise coming and people most impacted were at the center of figuring out what was going to happen. The second reason I say that we were able to do it is because we focus on fixing systems, not fixing people. And so the intervention included several different components. Um, maybe the most important component, and maybe not, you know, there's no evidence of this necessarily, was using electronic medical records, using electronic health records to increase transparency about what was happening in a hospital system and to look at that data by race and to report that data by race. A lot of people cannot fix problems in their systems because they don't even know that they're there. And it's not because we don't have the data. I mean, school systems have data. Hospital systems have data. Prison systems have data. All of our systems have data, but we very rarely actually use it 
to address racial inequities. And it wasn't easy to create this system, right? There was a lot of additional like support and expertise that came from, um, you know, people in med-, med tech spaces to build this system that could provide real time, real time feedback of when a patient missed a critical milestone in their care. And that feedback was provided to the physician champion and provided to their providers so that then it could be corrected. And, and that is the key, you know, for health disparities or to health, eliminating health inequities. You have to figure out what is happening before we get to the outcome that we can interrupt and change the reality or the likelihood that that outcome is going to happen. And so for cancer care, it's like death, right? What can we do before people drop out of treatment, stop doing their treatment at a systems level to ensure that they don't end up along that trajectory. And so that electronic health record data that pinpointed immediately when people missed a a vital treatment uh, experience or part of their protocol alerted the physician champion, alerted the nurse navigator, and alerted the care team. Now, the nurse navigator for the ACURE project was a really special type of position because it focused on bi-directional or multi-directional communication. It wasn't just about the navigator helping a patient figure out how to operate within our healthcare system. It was about giving feedback to our healthcare system about ways in which it was creating challenges for patients to be able to experience their care in a humanistic way. And so having that multi-directional communication is really important for systems change. And that nurse navigator also went to the two-day racial equity training, also participated in the team, also, you know, became a member of the collaborative, also was eventually hired away by the hospital because she did her job so damn good, you know? And so we had to get a new person um, to fill in that role. And that's fine, right? Like we want great people with great skills and great connections and great accountability to be in our systems. There was also a health equity and education training sessions. These were a series of sessions that were provided more of a historical and contextual understanding of racism in our healthcare system in particular. And it also provided hospitals and and systems with feedback about what was going on in their own systems and the histories of their own systems. So those were, I think I got the main components um, of of the intervention. We didn't tell patients, you gotta be motivated to finish your care. We didn't tell patients, you don't care enough about your health. We didn't call physicians racist, you racist physicians. We don't think that's a really good strategy <laughs> to getting to the outcomes that we want, right? We increase transparency and we increase systems of accountability for what was happening within their own systems. And, and, we, and, and we were an accountable community from the outside in, right? It's that inside-outside organizing work. I think. I think you mentioned something really important, and I think this is also something that Lizzie talked about. And so one of the things that you just talked about is you weren't out to sort of call people racist or to single them out in any particular way. You you really sort of focused on, well, what needs to happen within the system to make the system operate at its optimal level to be the most effective system generally. And from there, you can recognize and understand sort of where where there are gaps, where there's challenges, and how everyone can participate in fixing or fill, filling in those gaps. And it's not about any, the responsibility wasn't on any individual person per se. And so even with that idea, how did you get people on or on board to recognize that it's not about your individual behavior from the system's perspective? We'll we'll get to, to patients in a, in a minute. Um, how did you how did you all get people on board to recognize that it's not about you as this individual, you as the hospital administrator, you as the nurse practitioner, et cetera? I'll, I'll add a, just a little bit, and then my colleagues, um, please jump in. I think um, as 
as Stephanie was talking about that use of data. So part of it is knowing your audience, right? So if, if your audience really thrives on data, using the data, but a, an important piece of that is helping them to have the skills and tools to interpret the data, right? Because you could easily interpret disparity data and, and come back to some of those, you know, narratives that were debunked a hundred years ago that you might still, you might hear about biology and genetic differences. That training and that common analysis to really say, you know, let's take a look at the data. Let's take a look at the inequities um, that align with people's stories and experiences and the fact that they've been going on for decades. So what even we attempt to explain them based on a handful of quote unquote bad apples, I mean, that's just inadequate. That's an inadequate explanation to the persistency of of data, even within one system, within one hospital, or across an entire state and, you know, and across the nation, it's too inadequate. And I, and sometimes that helps, right? If you're talking to data people, um, that helps them kind of lean back and say, okay, you know, I get, I kind of intellectually get that this isn't about mean-spirited, bigoted people, although absolutely we've got them in our systems, including healthcare. And that's helpful. Um, with, so knowing your audience and with a different audience, um, you might use a different um, entryway to kind of shift people and help them see that. So I'll just add too that, you know, and Keon, you and I were both trained in like behavioral sciences and, and all of that. And we know that all the decades of health behavior interventions, and we are still here <laughs> with significant racial health inequities, right? So like how long are we going to keep investing resources in things that make us feel good, but don't actually change the things that we want to see? And so, you know, I think part of it, to Lizzie's point about data, is like reckoning with the data, right? That says that at the time of the study, Black women were less likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer, but more likely to die from breast cancer. Black women with health insurance, right? Ain't an issue about whether or not you have access to care. Right. It's an issue about once you have access to our healthcare systems, what is happening in our healthcare systems. Right. And I think there's even more and more data that's being put in our faces. Black women with, um, you know, doctoral degrees more likely to have bad infant and maternal mortality outcomes compared to their white counterparts who haven't finished high school. Now, you can try to tell me that a black woman with a PhD doesn't know the behaviors they need to engage in, the way to talk to their providers how to ensure that they get good prenatal health care. You can tell me all those things and I'm not going to believe you, but you can tell them to me, right? There's something else going on. And there's been significant amounts of quantitative and qualitative data that say, yes, behaviors matter, but they don't answer why we have racial health inequities. Behaviors matter for outcomes, right? But they don't explain the racial gaps, the racial differences, the racial, you know, um, what does Athena call them? They're not gaps anymore. She calls them um, canyons, right? The racial canyons cannot be explained by behaviors. It's just impossible statistically and, and realistically. You can behave as well as you want, but you are still, we are all still bathed in this environment that we have been born into, that we have inherited. And if we don't start getting to figuring all that out, you know, we're just going to be satisfied with some really big investments for some really low returns. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that, um, as you mentioned, we've been doing health behavior, health education, behavioral science, research and interventions for for quite a while and still have failed to make significant changes in public health. And it's because we we fail to focus on systems and structures. And we like, as a discipline, we like, as researchers, blaming individuals for not being able to fix their problems or um, educate them their 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 way out of or read in a pamphlet their 
um, how they need to sort of fix themselves. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's the thing that we like to do. And it's also really difficult to move beyond that because we see systems change. We see institutional change or broader policy change as really, really difficult and really hard. And, you know, it's the many, many of the things that you've talked about, um, I think, help you all to, you know, sort of stay focused on that. Um, as you all kind of continue to move through through this work, how do you continually or continuously reimagine healthcare um, broadly in healthcare systems and healthcare institutions? Yeah, this, um, you know, Kiana, I, I think I, I really realize that in addition to these systems being created uh, to advantage some over others, I, you know, there's this thing, implicit bias happening um, on top of that. And I think I reimagine healthcare by holding people accountable in those systems to always being educated and conscious of their implicit bias, but also thinking of outcomes before profit. And I think a lot of times these the hospitals, this is business. This is how can we get you to come back at whose expense though? And it seems like it's always black people having to take the hit on that. And we're not even talking about pharmaceutical companies. We're not even talking about the role they're playing with the hospitals. We're not talking about any of that. Um, so I, I reimagine healthcare as a place that actually is providing a public health approach, which is prevention as we know, and really emphasizing more on how can we hold the system accountable and what does it mean to change? When you discover something that isn't right, how are you changing that? What are you doing to actually adopt it? As Stephanie mentioned, the real-time registry system, how do you adopt that? How do all systems, because I'll say this, our goal at the collaborative is we wanna change every healthcare system to be just like a cure. Like we want everyone to have the same level of accountability so that everyone can live. And, and, and to me, the ACURE project is reimagining healthcare. That's kind of how I look at it. I'll, I'll just chime in and say, and, and I want to also just acknowledge that as I talk about health behavior and health education, it's because I have a critical love for my discipline. And health behavior and health education is important. Like, don't get me wrong. It's just not the answer, right? It's an inadequate response. It's an important part of the response. It's just insufficient. We can't stop there, as you said, Keon. Um, and in terms of like my reimagining um, healthcare, this is a this is an iterative process for me. I I'm constantly learning, and one of the things that I'm learning, and actually I'm going to bring John Hatch into this because I recently saw so John Hatch. Um, was one of the OGs, right, of community health center movements. And I had the great fortune of listening to him recently at a faith and health conference. And he talked, so John Hatch is 95 years old. And so he remembers enslavement. He remembers his grandmother and the impacts of enslavement. He talked about how in his community, he remembers people worshiping together. And he remembers a man in their community who everybody would circle around and pray for and dance for and, and, and speak over and touch. And he said he didn't know that as a little boy, but what they were doing, they were providing community mental health services to this man. And, and so, and, and when he said that, you know, it just made me pause because one of the things that I'm coming to believe is that we already know what we need. A lot of what, a lot of what we need and what has worked for us historically, ancestrally, indigenously has been stripped away with this goal of becoming more white, right? Having access to institutional power and not feeling like we have the space to bring in our culture, our rituals that came from our ancestors into the ways in which we heal. And so, you know, when he said that, it just reminded me of like Sankofa, right? Like we have to go back and learn, relearn and bring that to the future, to, into the present day. 
And I think really it's about lots of different strategies. I think there's room for more cultural-based healthcare systems, community care. I think there's room for these structural interventions in hospital systems. A lot of a lot of stress though comes from trying to convince people that racism is a thing and and so we have to be taking care of ourselves too as we do this work and we have to decide is my work in the system or is in my work creating something different and reconnecting with my ancestors who have who went through experiences that were significantly more like physically and emotionally and mentally challenging than what we're we're going through, even though we are going through really tough stuff too. But like to survive the Middle Passage and in, in centuries of enslavement, not knowing when you would ever get to freedom. And they didn't have hospitals then, right? They had tinctures, <laughs> they had medicine men and women, they had herbs, they had roots, they had each other, they had love, they had touch they had music they had drums like you know and so like i just i think it's a multiple when i when i think i'm imagining the future it's doing all of that and figuring out like what my like what what feels right for me what place and role am i supposed to have in this in this moment and and just really trusting and believing that that we are being ushered into the work that we're supposed to be doing at the time we're supposed to be doing it yeah, you really spoke to the idea of um, really not only just reimagining healthcare, reimagining medicine, but also reimagining what healing looks like. You know, we use you know these terms targeting and tailoring in in public health, and you know that is sort of kind of the essence of, of, of both of those, both of those terms, both of those phrases and, and the idea that you meet people where they are and part of meeting them where they are is not just recognizing their needs, but also recognizing sort of the, the broad range of assets that, that surround them, the broad range of um, opportunities to pull or introduce or, um, bring in their culture, their community in lots of different ways that we don't think about often, um, or we set aside or we count them as variables or we count them as a strategy and an intervention, right? And so you're really talking about how does one or how does an entity bring that all together in terms of reimagining this, this, this thing that we call healthcare and, and even medicine. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's very, very helpful for us to think about and also the recognition that it's not easy to do um, as well. And it, and it takes that sort of constant, um, the constant work, the constant levels of accountability that you all have, have talked about so far. And I appreciate that. Uh, and I think our, those folks that will listen to this can appreciate that as well. Um, so I wanna just ask a couple other questions because you know this work is hard, this work is difficult. Um, how has this work been supported and funded? Um, over the last 19 years? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I know uh, we've had funding from the NIH. Um, we've had funding from, I'm going to pause and say this, it takes an institution, a funder, to actually value systems thinking. And I believe that we had opportunities from those who funded us, who saw the value of systems thinking. And I'm really actually hopeful, Kian, and you and I and others are involved with this to see bigger funding institutions tr finally trying to recognize the role that power and the role that systems thinking has in their funding. And so we were only able to do this work because they valued the work we were trying to do. And so, yes, yeah, so NIH is a funder. Um, there are a few others that I'm sure that I'm missing. Um, but I think it's really important to recognize that um, this funding would not have happened without some of our skill sets in the collaborative, which is why the academics and the community members and others are important. And, and, and we'll also tell you that we co-authored together with community members, and I think people value that. But so anyway, I'll stop there and say that, but I know there's, I would love to hear from my 
friends here or what their thoughts are about um, since they've been involved a little longer than I have. One of the aspects of the start of the collaborative that I love is that it started with like a 13-month planning grant from a local foundation. Um, and here we are nearly 20 years later. And so um, we are all volunteer. We have no paid staff. So ultimately, we will keep meeting whether there's funding or not. Uh, what paid for the food that kept me coming back, in, at least early on, was we do have a small annual member dues. Um, and simultaneously, if people can't, you know, people don't, aren't able to pay the due for whatever reason, they don't need to. Because um, we do think that the important part of our analysis is not to be beholden to funders um, and, a, and a variety of funders. And so we're really saying, no, we're going to be, we're, we're accountable to community, not to, to who's putting dollars into our bank account. Um, and we've been fortunate simultaneously to have those local foundations um, up to the NIH. And and I'll just add, um, so the NIH did fund the initial um, pilot project, you know, CARES, and then they ended up funding the R1, um, the five-year project. And there was an extension, I believe, that was added onto that too. And NIH has funded a few additional extension projects that have come out of the ACARE project. But NIH is is run by our government. So when the government changes, they're not going to be as open to funding projects that have racism in the title. In fact, I remember a friend of mine in, in graduate school was trying to get funding from NIH and had to change the language of like gay from his title because at the time they were actually scanning proposals to see trigger words that would lead them to not fund certain types of projects. And so I think it's a blessing that the NIH funded, you know, the ACURE project at a particular time under a particular administration. But this work cannot be contingent upon those variables. And when we tried to get funding for an extension of the ACURE project to include Indigenous and um, American Indian Native American communities to include the Latinx communities, that was not funded. Now, we had a successful intervention that actually eliminated racial inequities, which is what we all say we want to do. We have evidence, and yet we can't get funded from the NIH for subsequent projects, right? So it's a both and thing. Grateful that they had the capacity to do it back then. Can't, can, can't count on them for consistent and steady funding. And, and, and this type of work takes more than five years, right? You know, like... <laughs> no, undoing racism, we can do that in a year, right? We can, <laughs> we can do that in an 18-month grant, right? That, that's another issue, like y'all saying, like the, the funders don't have an analysis on what it takes to do the work, as Stephanie was saying. And I think the sad thing about it is that, you know, they don't understand that you ha it takes years to build relationships. It takes years to do the things that we're doing, and it takes a lot of time to maintain those relationships, right? And and so I think, and the sad thing to Stephanie's point as well is, once we close the gap in the disparities, they we have a hard time publishing the findings. Nobody wants to disseminate the truth, and I mean, there's a few, but we struggled with that. And the question is, like you said, why? What are we hiding? And that's where it comes to me. What is your incentive at the end of the day? What do you really want to change? Do you really want this to change? No, because you're going to put people out of a job. It's th you're thinking economically more so than hum human for hum humanitarian. For human you know what I'm trying to say? So and I, I just, it's, I struggle with that balance. And so there's hope. Like you said, Stephanie, I'm excited to see these people finally trying to recognize the value of community members leading as PIs on projects. But at the end of the day, it's all about who are you helping and who do we value? And that's racism. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a lot of what you talked about is, you know, the work of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative. You know, it, it's, it's going to continue to move on. And in part because you're, you're detached from it being funded by any particular grant to keep you all at the table. And you all are at the table because you're concerned, you're compassionate, you are interested, you are engaged and re-engaged in multiple ways. 
of, you know, to focus on this work and to continue doing this work. So if I were to ask you all um, as representatives of the, of the collaborative, what do you think the legacy is and will be of the, of the collaborative? I can start here because Stephanie, I know Lizzie is going to drop the mic. Um, <laughs> I would say this. I think the legacy for me is twofold. One, systems can change and can save lives. But most importantly, number two, the community members have to be leading in any project. They have to remain centered and race has to be at its center as well. So I think the legacy of keeping race centered, having community dr drive change is important and showing that not only will it help people of color, in this case, Black people, it will also help everyone else. So I'm going to pull a little bit from Jeannie's um, retirement uh, dinner. And her daughter talked about using that participle ing, ing, right? And so I think our legacy is developing and will it'll always be developing. And one of the things that I love about the collaborative is its space for welcoming our children. Um, to come to meetings, to pop into Zoom. And so what they are witnessing is a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-gendered, multi-sexual orientation, multi-religious, multi-age, multi-generational, multi-discipline, <laughs> multi-geographic location, community of people, who for some reason are committed steadfastly to keep meeting every Tuesday night, interrupting their time with their parents, right? Coming together to work to solve problems in our society. And, and I think about my own daughter and she always pops into the Zoom and she's always welcomed with love and care. They buy Girl Scout cookies, you know, like, so like what she's seeing is the process that I believe it takes to get to that beloved community that I hope that we will see. I probably will see from an ancestral place, right? But that is my hope. Um, that is my big hope. And so I, I, I think she sees, this is how I can do this work. I don't know what my work's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be health or music or fashion, but I see my mommy modeling commitment I see her modeling relationships with a lot of different people who look a lot of different ways, who bring a lot of different levels of experience to the table. And if I can kind of build that myself, wow, what can I do? So that's what, that's the legacy I hope we leave. I'll try and um, add into kind of already what my brilliant colleagues have said. Um, part of the legacy that I hope is, um, and I get a chance through my work with the Racial Equity Institute to see some of the work to address inequities in other systems as well. And I think the collaborative has a nuanced approach to thinking and talking about racial inequities and racism. And I hope part of our legacy is to say, you know, racism is a system of is, its social and institutional power. And I hope part of our legacy is that we make a shift more broadly in talking about disparities to really saying we've got to examine power. We've got to examine the historical four or five centuries of a system of advantage that have been built to benefit one group of people. And um, that's a nuance in the broader world of talking about inequities, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion work that I don't hear as, as, a, as a strong as a theme as I think that the collaborative puts at the center of our work. And so I hope that's in addition to the things my colleagues have already said is that shifting of that legacy to say, you know, we can, we can talk about disparities in the way that we have been for a while, but we'll continue to do that, we believe, until we start talking about power. That's great. Thank you all for, for sharing. And so as you continue to extend the legacy of, of the collaborative and continue to build what, what it will be, um, so let's say you are new. You all have been new. I have been new to, to the collaborative. So how does someone who is new enter this work? Well, I say just jump on the Zoom. We, we, we welcome people, but we also are going to hound them and say, did you go to that two-day racial equity training? To be honest, because 
We want to make sure that they're coming with the same analysis and we can actually have productive conversation about power and privilege as well as obviously racism. So yes, they can honestly go to our website, but they honestly, we're, we're so informal. We're like, we bring people here all the time. It's like, bring us mine to the cookout. You know, you want to come and they just show up and then they like it. They come back. If they don't, they don't. But most people come back. Um, they, they people would leave because of they had commitments, personal obligations. But, you know, listen, we're family for real. And we don't we we welcome anybody that's for the cause that we're working on. And I'll, I'll add, I don't think um, I think there are probably other similar types of collaboratives across the country that just maybe haven't gotten lucky to get the funding or the the shine time that we have. I, I, I truly believe that they exist. And so I think what was interesting for me is when I came to my first meeting, I was so unfamiliar <laughs> with like community academic medical partnerships and that I actually found myself really sitting back and listening for a long time. And there were moments when I would like speak up and say something because it may have been on my heart, but I did a lot of sit back listening and learning before I actually thought about what contributions that I might be able to make. Um, so I think, you know, entering this work with great humility um, for the effort, the time, the commitment, the knowledge that people have been doing all along before it was popular, before it was fundable, before their hashtags and just how, you know, and again, like I just sat at the feet of John Hatch. That's how I felt like I was doing and just like just listening to him and absorbing all of the wisdom that he had to impart upon me. So I think like entering spaces and just really being coming from a humble place, being willing to learn, being slow to speak, slow to have the answers, slow to have the solution, slow to have, you know, this is what we need to do next. And then really just kind of letting yourself find your way in the work. Well, thank you. Um, Lizzie, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I think about my advice, particularly for white folks entering this this work and this field. And I, I think one of us have met, um, Crystal and Stephanie are both mentioned, Suzanne Plissick. She's one of the co-founders for the Racial Equity Institute, a white woman doing this work for three decades. And she frequently says, you know, Multiple things are true simultaneously. And for, for us as white people, we are good and decent human beings and we need to change. So when we enter this work, we need to sit with both of those things. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing. I think it's also important to, again, recognize the, the, the brilliance, the genius of the, of the founders of the Greensboro Health, Health Disparities Collaborative. Um, I've had the privilege and pleasure of meeting Mama Nettie um, and learning learning from her and recognizing, you know, that tireless and fearless spirit that, that she had. And uh, she is certainly greatly missed um, in many, many ways. And so I'm, I'm glad that um, the vision that she had helped to bring you all together and, and, and again, as a postdoc at UNC, you know, having the opportunity to to work with the collaborative as well. Um, so part of the story of a cure is you have a a partner, another healthcare partner in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So um, Michael Jonas was a member of the collaborative and went to work at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC. And so when the Cure project was being created, of course, it is NIH. So we need a, you know, we need a comparison place. And also it's important when you're doing intervention implementation to demonstrate that an intervention of this nature can work at a small regional hospital, which was the case in Greensboro, as well as like an academic medical center, which is UPMC. So they were important partners in the work and they really mimicked and mirrored every stage um, that we talked about of the project. I will say one thing that was unique to UPMC was the way that they implemented the health, implemented the health equity and education training sessions. So they did it during their grand rounds and grand rounds are part of the culture of medicine that you show up to grand rounds. Everybody goes to grand rounds. There's no if and what about it, you gonna be there. So that means everybody was getting exposed 
to the health education and health equity and education training sessions. Now in Greensboro, they actually were optional. And so people could opt in to attending those sessions. Um, So UPMC was an important piece of the project as well. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Anything else anybody want to add before we go? I have one comment, Keon. I, I will say I am optimistic because as Lizzie may have been alluding to, we're looking at how we can apply the Acura model into other systems. So we're, you know, we're not just stopping at healthcare. We we're actually might be expanding in healthcare. We may be looking at other, you know, chronic conditions right now, but we recognize that cancer is not the only space where there are disparities. So we're really excited about the next steps that we're looking to take. Gonna stop here again to thank you all for participating in this conversation um, on critical futures. And uh, we look forward to learning more from the collaborative in, in, in the days and years to come. And um, I really appreciate you sharing openly about all the things that the collaborative is doing. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.